Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up the Psalm 133. Psalm 133. And let me pray for us as you turn there. Father God, would you bless this morning, Lord, the reading, the teaching of your word? Would you bless the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, and the words of my mouth? Holy Spirit, would you draw near in a fresh way? Would you speak through me to all of us, Lord, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 133, and while you turn there, I want you to think about this. Where in life right now would you say that you have a relationship where you're experiencing the most unity? You're getting along with somebody the best. Maybe in your marriage, maybe a business partner, something like that, maybe a roommate. And also I want you to think about the relationship in life where maybe you're experiencing the greatest lack of unity. You're not getting along so well. Maybe it's a hot war, there's arguments and Yelling and screaming, or maybe it's not that bad. It's more of a cold war, just a cold shoulder. You don't really speak to each other. And I want you to think about what's the essential difference? What is the difference in those two relationships that makes one so great, so easy, so enjoyable, and the other so hard? We're going to look at Psalm 133, like I said. And when you look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134, a word called the Songs of Ascent. And they were put together, and the idea was when pilgrims in the nation of Israel would go up to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts, maybe Passover, they would sing these songs together. And so Psalm 133 is one of the last ones, and it may have been sung literally as they were coming into the courts of the tabernacle. Uh, It may have been sung at the end of the service as they were celebrating the unity they experienced in this feast. But... It gives us an idea. This is the goal of what Christian fellowship, Christian unity ought to be about. When was it first written? We're not exactly sure. It was probably written, though, sometime around 2 Samuel chapter 5, if you want to kind of locate it in the historic books, when King David had been made king, and he finally brought all the nation of Israel, all the 12 tribes together. The house of Saul and the house of David were unified. The wars were ceased as far as within the tribes of Israel. We're going to look at the idea this morning, just three quick points, that unity, it's a good thing, it's a gracious thing, and it's a given thing, and I'll explain more about what I mean by that when we get there. So the first thing, I'm going to just read this psalm, and then we'll go back and comment. Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forever. Now the first thing. Unity is good. It's a good thing. This means at least two things. The psalmist is saying this. He's saying, listen, stop. Think about it. Behold, pay attention to the idea that when unity happens between human beings, it's good. And he says it's also pleasant. Now good has the idea that it's objectively good. It's moral, it's right, it's ethical, it honors God, it pleases God. You should want unity, you should like unity, you should pursue unity, you should work for unity. But then he says it's pleasant, and what he means is, it's not just that it's objectively good, like there's verses in the Bible that say it's good, so we should take it on faith that it's good. 
experientially, subjectively. It's good when people are unified. I remember when we were up in Florence, we had young children. And I can remember driving to church sometimes. And if one of the kids is crying and the other one is yelling or complaining about something, that's not unity in the family. That's not a fun way. That's not an enjoyable way to start your day of worship and rest. But if by some supernatural miracle, the kids were actually getting along in the car, maybe they were swinging, singing sweet praise songs, that's enjoyable. It's delightful. And unity is that way in any relationship. And guys, listen, everything that we're going to say this morning can be applied in virtually any human relationship at the smallest level, husband and wife, the family level, a church level, a city level, a country level, a global level. And I want you to think about maybe where is it most applicable in your life today to think about unity as something that should be prayed for, something that should be worked for. And when it's found, when it's enjoyed, it should be celebrated. Think about God, even our God. He's a triune being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always lived in perfect unity. They always have, they always will. When God first made mankind, Adam and Eve, perfect unity. They were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide, nothing to fear. They got along great with one another. That is God's design. That is God's desire for unity to be in his people at all times. But again, it's helpful if you go into this, not just as a theoretical uh, sermon, That's interesting. But where in your life right now do you lack unity? Where can you pray for it more? Where should you work for it more? And where in your life are you experiencing it? You ought to celebrate. You ought to behold. You ought to rejoice that God has given you that gift. Now, the second point is this. Unity is grace. It's a gracious thing. And what I mean by that, it's a sign of God's favor. Because in this broken and sinful world, unity is pretty rare, is it not? And when you have it, when you enjoy it, you ought to see this is a blessing from God. I can't take all the credit for it. God has graciously given this to me. Look again at verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now what is this talking about here? This is talking about the great high priest Aaron who was anointed to be the mediator between God and his people. And they, they had a special perfume oil that they would make and they would pour it on his head or whoever the next high priest was to come and it consecrated them it set them apart and it was a sign of God's blessing it was a sign of God's favor it was a sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon that person in power and when we experience unity in the church similarly it's a sign of God's smile his blessing his drawing nearer His filling us with the Holy Spirit. His empowering us for ministry. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Aaron and his sons were not admitted to minister unto the Lord until they were anointed with this ointment. Nor are we ourselves acceptable to God without this holy love. If we have it not, we are nothing. Think about 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter that we're probably all familiar with. If I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. Guys, love for others, which is one of the foundations of true unity, it's a prerequisite for really effective, long-lasting ministry. Listen to David Jeremiah. God lavishes his blessing when there is unity among his children. Charles Spurgeon. Never shall we know the full power of the anointing until we are of one heart and of one spirit. I'm excited about being with y'all for as long as the Lord shall ordain. And I hope that part of what's on your heart is a powerful ministry to this community, to your friends, to your neighbors, to other family members. And part of the prerequisite for a powerful supernatural ministry is the unity of God's people. Guys, the oil that was poured out all over Aaron's head, it was a special mix of cinnamon and myrrh and other ancient smelling good things. I don't know all that was in it, okay? You can go read in Exodus. But the point was, it was delightful. It smelled good. It was attractive. And we know this, guys. John 13, right? Jesus said, they will know you're my followers by the way that you love one another. John 17, this is one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for on his last night before the crucifixion. God, I pray for my people that they would be one even as we are one. It's on his heart. Part of the ministry that we have done in, in Birmingham, a lot of times we work with this uh, football team, sometimes at Sanford, and sometimes we would have dinner, and a lot of them would come over to our house. And again, this was back when our children were younger. And so usually they'd come over, they'd eat a bunch of barbecue, and then half the guys would go into the den to watch whatever game happened to be on TV, and the other half might go in the backyard or down the basement and throw the football with our children or something like that. But I remember one time we had a big group over, and there was one guy he'd never been. It was his first time to come. And he was a pretty big, burly football player. And he literally hung out in the kitchen the whole night just talking to my wife, which I thought was a little strange. But, you know, I like my wife a lot. So I was like, I guess he just likes my wife a lot. Uh, When they left, one of the guys that I was discipling on the football team said, hey, man, I need to tell you kind of how he what he had to say. I said, yeah, because he was a new guy. I wasn't even sure if he was a Christian. I said, what he had to say? He said, man, I loved being at that house. And he said, what'd you love about it? He said, you know, it, it, it wasn't the food, the food, all that was great. He said, but it just reminded me of growing up when my parents were still married and how enjoyable that was and how much I missed that long family. When people see unity in our lives, it attracts them. It draws them in. It's pleasant. And guys, there, there's something in the poetic language here of the oil being poured out on Aaron's head and just running down his beard onto the top of his robe. Unity is supposed to start at the top and trickle down. If mom and dad aren't getting along, good chance the kids aren't going to be getting along either, right? If political leaders aren't getting along, pretty good chance the country's going to be divided. Some of you will be old enough to remember 9-11 when that happened. We were actually up here when that happened. And I don't remember exactly, but what, I remember what it felt like in America for at least three or four months was like the Republicans and the Democrats voted in lockstep on everything. They even went out on the front steps of the Capitol and saying, God bless America. And it was like the whole country came together. It didn't last long, but it trickled down for just a little bit. Same thing happens in churches. Same thing happens in 
other civic organizations. Think about the book of Acts. We won't take time to flip over there, but if you went to Acts chapter 1, you'll probably remember this. It said there were only 120 believers at that point that were gathering together, but they were praying in one mind, one spirit. They were unified in what they were praying for. And then God poured out His Holy Spirit and power. 3,000 people were baptized. And at the end of chapter 2, it talks about how they were living in unity. Such unity that if anybody had a need, somebody else would sell something instantly to meet the need. It was almost like they had all things in common. Unity at the top, it trickles down. Unity is a good thing. Unity is a gracious thing. And third, unity is given. And what I mean by that is, guys, it's a miracle. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to rebel, unity has not been the norm. And if we're going to have unity in our family, in the church, in the city, in the country, in the world, it's going to be ultimately a divine work of God. Dew is from heaven. Look again at verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings life forever. Dew comes from heaven. We can't manufacture it. God has to bring it down. And these two different mountains mentioned are pretty interesting. Mount Hermon was in Israel. It was in a very rural part. It was a very tall mountain. And it, it was famous for getting very heavy dew. Almost every night it looked like it had rained and had been saturated. And oftentimes it would run down in streams and water other places that would produce vegetation. But Zion was more of a hill 90 miles away in more of an urban area. And for Zion to get the exact same dew that Mount Hermon was getting, it would never happen. It would be a miracle. But do you see the illustration here? He's saying, I want the north and the south to come together. I want Israel and Judah to be united. I want the tall and the short, the rural and the urban, all to be brought together. That was the prayer. That was the hope for ancient Israel, the church in the Old Testament. And God could do that. God did do that seemingly for short stints of time. It didn't seem to last very long. Guys, do you remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and, first, Adam and Eve first sinned? The first experiential consequence of their sin? One minute ago, they'd been best friends. The greatest marriage of all time. And now they didn't trust each other. Don't look at me. Let me cover up. Let me hide from you. I don't like you. I don't trust you. I'm suspicious. I'm worried. I'm fearful. One of the massive and first consequence of sin, it breaks unity at the horizontal level with other Christians. Here's Matthew Henry again, talking about this dew from heaven. It cools the scorching heat of men's passion as the evening dews cool the air and refresh them. Guys, just like dew comes down from heaven to produce vegetation on earth, Unity is a gift God gives us, but why? To empower us for ministry to others. Now flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to look at just a couple places very briefly in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And actually let's start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4 and start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul. And Ephesians is one of those letters where he spends the first three chapters primarily giving them a bunch of doctrine, talking about what God has done. 
And then right in the middle of the book, the beginning of chapter 4, he turns to say, now in light of what God has done, here's what we should do. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been seen, been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So guys, if in the beginning of this sermon when I said, what relationship are you experiencing the most unity in right now? Don't take it for granted. Be eager to maintain it. Do the work to maintain a spirit of unity because it won't just last on its own. Why not? Skip down to verse 25. Go all the way down to verse 25. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What an interesting sentence. There's a lot of things that are interesting about it. First is this. There is such thing as righteous anger. It may be very rare that we actually experience it, but it does exist somewhere out there. But this verse is a warning even about righteous anger. Do you see that? And this is what happens so many times among Christians. Something happens in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood. And maybe, maybe for once in your life, it's like, no, no, no. She sinned against me so bad, I know this is righteous anger. Okay, good for you, all right? Take a picture because it may be the only time you ever actually experience it. But notice what he says. You better be careful. You better deal with it. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, even your righteous anger, and give the upper, no opportunity to the devil. I think it's John MacArthur that says Satan loves to lurk around angry people. Because he knows I can get in there and I can bring discord. So even when you have righteous anger, you better deal with it quickly. Maybe you need to go confront somebody in love. Matthew Henry again, I love Matthew Henry, says, say the hardest truth in the softest way. Maybe you need to just overlook it and forgive it. I don't know. But what I know you need to do is not just stuff it. Because that volcano will eventually blow. And it won't be fun for anyone when it does. Treat righteous anger like the proverbial hot potato. Even when you have it, you need to get rid of it. Give it to God in prayer. Ask others to pray for you. Go have the conversation, even if it's going to be awkward. Now, I want us to dig a little bit deeper. I mean, Satan is trying to sow seeds of discord. He wants to bring disunity among God's people. His first goal is to separate us from God the Father. If he can't do that, he'll separate us from one another. What is it that typically causes a lack of unity? Think about James chapter 4. James asked the question, what is it that causes quarrels and divisions among you? Is it not your passions, your pleasures, your desires that get too strong? And I think it tends to be three different things. Sometimes it's a desire for pleasure. It's like I'm trying to pursue pleasure and this person in some way is blocking me. And so I'll just have to run over them to get what I want. Other times it may not be that. It might be more my possessions, maybe my profit, and I'm trying to protect it. I don't want somebody to take something from me because it makes me feel secure. And then other times, and this might be the most often, it's just my pride. It's my sense of prestige. And I'm trying to promote myself. And when somebody else comes against that, I don't like it. And if i got to get into some conflict to keep promoting myself, I'm willing to do it. 
And one last passage I want us to look at, and Clay already referred to it when he prayed, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. While you turn to Philippians chapter 2, I want you to think about this. Philippians is one of those books that you read it, and you can tell the church at Philippi was one of Paul's favorites. I mean, mainly the letter to the church at Philippi, it's a lot of praise. It's a lot of honor. It's a lot of you guys are doing almost everything right. But he does say there's one thing you still got to work on. And let's look at it in chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, I'm starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now just pause for a second on that last phrase. One of the reasons I love the Bible is it's so practical. It's so realistic. Paul doesn't say people actually are more significant than you. He doesn't say you have to believe they're more significant than you. He just says treat them like they are. Pretend like they are. Just treat them that way. Look at verse 4. It's even better in my opinion. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I had a friend recently in Birmingham. He does a Bible study with a baseball team. He asked me to come speak, and he said, will you come and speak on being a selfless leader? And I said, sure, I'm happy to do that. But then I said, you know, technically, and I, I wasn't trying to throw him under the bus. I was trying to make a point. I said, when I did the Bible study, I said, technically, the Bible never even uses the word selfless. The Bible's more practical than that. The Bible never says you have to be selfless. It just says you just have to be number two. You just have to put other people first. And I've heard some people sometimes say, that doesn't sound radical enough. That doesn't sound spiritual enough. I'll give you a challenge. Just for the next seven days, every interaction you have with any other human being, your spouse, your next door neighbor, your roommate, your child, your parent, church member, co-worker, person that cuts you off in traffic, whoever it may be, just say, you know what? I'm going to put their interest first. And see how many selfish buttons that will press in your heart. I think we'll all be exposed. Okay. Now, why is this so hard, guys? Why is this so hard for us? Because ever since the fall, selfishness has been like at the root of our heart. This self-protection, this self-promotion. But the answer is just to keep reading. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you're in Christ, the Spirit lives in you, which means the mind of Christ dwells in you. I just have to appropriate it. I have to start thinking like the Lord Jesus thinks. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're so often trying to reach out and grab our rights, demand our rights. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he had all the rights. He had all the privileges. And he willingly said, for the sake of those sinful, selfish rebels down there, I'll lay down my rights. I'll lay down my privileges to go and to pursue them. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I've been reading a book recently about spies during World War II. 
And these people that were willing to leave the safety of America before America was even in the war and be parachuted into occupied Europe to help defeat the Nazis because they were so wicked. And it's staggering the number of them that were caught, that were tortured, and that were killed. And imagine if after the war, maybe you're living in one of these free countries and you had the right to vote, but you decided, ah, I don't feel like voting today. Too busy. Don't like the candidates. And listen, I'm not trying to make a political argument here, okay? Just, just go with this illustration. Somebody might say to you, people died for you to have the right to vote. You ought to steward it. You ought to exercise it. There's a lot of people that want this privilege that don't have it. It's a blood-bought gift. Unity among God's people, guys, is a blood-bought gift. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life, yes, to make peace between God and man, and that's the number one blessing. But the second blessing is to make peace between one another. And yes, ultimately, it's a gift given by God, but it's a gift that we have to maintain. It's a gift that we need to steward. It's a gift that we pray for. And it's a gift by His grace with the Holy Spirit that we work in conjunction to foster and to grow. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. The next time you're tempted to kind of do self-protection, think about how He was willing to lay down His life to protect you from the wrath of God. The next time you're willing to pursue your pleasure, even if it costs you that relationship, think about how he was willing to pursue you all the way to hell to save you. The next time you're, you kind of want to promote yourself, make sure everybody knows how smart you are, how good you are, how accomplished you are, think about how he was willing to promote you before the Father. Here's one that I died for. And just lay those things down so that we can enjoy more intimacy with him, but we can also enjoy more friendship, fellowship, and unity with one another. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our Savior. You're our model. You're our example. Thank you that we can rest in you. Thank you that by your grace we can begin to follow in your footsteps, not perfectly. I pray that more and more we would experience this gift, this blessing of unity. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.